this is, I think, you know, really getting at the heart of kind of liveness and what it means for the dead is that live dead turns into this kind of template for the live recordings that are kind of introduced and in, uh, that are released in the early 70s. Hey there, this is the official tapes. It's a Grateful Dead radio program where we showcase the official releases from the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead were one of the most successful live acts of the rock era, performing more than 2,300 shows between 1965 and 1995. The Grateful Dead's reputation as a live band was and continues to be sustained by thousands of live concert recordings from every era of the group's long and colorful career. John Brackett, the book is Live Dead, The Grateful Dead, Live Recordings, and The Ideology of Liveness. Musicologist John Brackett, he is going to examine how live recordings from the group's official releases to fan-produced tapes of bootlegs to Betty Boards and Dick's Picks to From the Vault. They've shaped the general history and popular mythology of the Grateful Dead for more than 50 years. John Brackett, he's going to give us a little bit of the history of recorded live music and just what the term live music is all about. Also a good spin on authenticity and then, of course, Grateful Dead releases and relationship with live releases. The focus of the book is really on how live recordings became meaningful for the dead and their fans. And I felt like to really unpack that idea, you really kind of have to, first of all, consider the history of live recordings. Once you do, you see amongst critics and fans, they're neither fish nor fowl. They're not quite studio recordings, but they're not quite documents either. And so this kind of ambivalence about the value of live recordings really is traced to live event itself and a lot of the values that we attribute to live musical performance. And this is where I get into this ideology of liveness, kind of the language, you know, the system of beliefs and the values that we have about the live musical event these kind of ideas that we have about the idea of kind of the live musical performance, the live musical event. I'm using that term liveness to describe a particular way of kind of living in the world, of how you look at live music, these kind of embedded values, culturally embedded values that many of us kind of grow up and assume, right? That live music offers this kind of more authentic kind of experience. The idea that some type of uh, communal aspect emerges from these live musical performances at the same time that there is this kind of energy that is formed between the performers and the audience. So liveness for me, yeah, it's, it's you know, you can't particularly necessarily point at, oh, yeah, that's a marker of liveness or that's a marker of liveness. Liveness is just how many of us exist you know, in relationship to these live musical events. It's just this transparent veil in many ways that we use to kind of, you know, interpret the live musical event. So much of the book, you know, liveness is that thing that holds it together, but in many ways, authenticity is closely connected with that concept too. 
what counts as the most real, you know, as the, the most true, the most genuine. And so when we start to talk about live recordings, that starts to become very weird. What do we mean by that? So authenticity is just this kind of thread that runs throughout this entire discussion. And as I point out in this opening chapter, this is a relatively recent kind of phenomenon. Before the invention of the phonograph, nobody would have been extolling the virtues of live music. All music would have been quote-unquote live, even though nobody would have used that term to describe it. It just would have been music. It took the presence of recordings to, or the kind of the introduction of recordings, reproduction technologies to really kind of make that idea, well, the, form the basis of that idea potentially becoming meaningful. And I kind of locate that beginning in like the 1920s with the kind of the invention or the introduction of sound recording technologies in theaters. This displaced, uh, you know, thousands of performing musicians throughout the United States, you know, with the introduction of talkies, performers who've been playing in theaters, accompanying silent films, they're out of a job right now. As a response to that, the American Federation of Musicians, the largest union of professional musicians in North America, develops this promotional campaign that is designed to kind of convince American audiences, North American audiences, as to the value of kind of the uh, live experience. Live isn't used yet. This word does not exist yet, not in that context. But they're talking about, you know, music performed in the flesh. And they're, they start to kind of, you know, use this language and imagery that is, you know, helps to kind of get the American public to kind of see the value of this music as the jobs are being stolen, taken away from them by these soulless recordings. What are we losing? And it's this kind of spiritual contact these ads talk about, you know, this relationship between the performing musicians and the audience, that kind of crucial link. And so by the, you know, the 20s going into the 30s now, American audiences are starting to be conditioned to think about live music as having this kind of distinct aesthetic experience as to recordings. And it's at this time that we start, you know, by the 40s in the United States, that's when we start seeing the term live being used in, you know, print publications, just in the popular lexicon. And so that's where, you know, this opening chapter is just kind of giving, you know, this broad overview of why, you know, the seemingly kind of transparent value to us, how it developed, how it even formed. This is all before the dead even come on the scene or before live recordings and tapers. This is the history that they kind of enter into by the time they start recording in the 60s. The Grateful Dead were renowned as a live band. Before they signed a record contract with Warner Brothers, this is what they did. They were renowned as a live band. Richard Goldstein is talking about it in Village Voice, Ralph Gleason. People just know that this is what this band is about. But then they signed a record label and now they have to make records. And that's different. 
that's a very different thing. And what I argue in the book is that this ideology of liveness that is being perpetuated by their fans and by the critics now is also being reflected in how they're approaching recording. You know, the first record, they play the backing tracks live in the studio and then overdub the vocals on top. With Anthem of the Sun, it's combining all of these, you know, studio and live recordings. You know, once we get to Oxymoxoa, you know, it starts off as this kind of crazy kind of studio thing, but that was the moment that the 16 track, you know, Ampex machine was introduced to the band. And so it's while they're recording that, they also start using that machine to record the live shows too. Now, once you have 16 tracks, now you can start to get really detailed live recordings. They could not get the kind of the quality types of live recordings that they wanted to with the available technology prior to the 16 track. You know, even with up to eight tracks, with the number of musicians that they had at that point, you couldn't really get the close miking and the isolation to kind of balance out the live recordings that would give you this kind of sonic quality. But, you know, once they got that 16-track machine and recorded those shows, you know, that's what we hear on Live Dead. You know, that's what makes that record just so, you know, it just jumps out at the speakers. You know, notice it starts off so quiet, right? And that's what's remarkable about it, is it immediately sucks you in and you're listening to these incredibly shimmering sounds. It doesn't blast you right away with noise. It introduces you to this brilliant sound that's offered by the new recording technologies. This is what fans and critics had been kind of hoping for from the band in terms of their commercial releases. Lenny Kay and Rolling Stone gives it this incredible review. There's some other reviews that I mentioned in the book. And for fans as well. Yeah, this was really kind of the moment that they were like, all right, yeah, this in some way offers a glimpse into those kind of transcendental experiences that are offered in the live shows. Now we can get that sound. And from here on out, you know, obviously the next year, what do they do? They release two studio records, right? That are like their biggest records to date. So with an increased kind of audience, a larger audience following Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, their concert audiences grow even bigger. And, you know, Live Dead turns into this kind of template for the live recordings that are kind of introduced and in, uh, that are released in the early 70s. Skull and Roses, you know, same thing, compilation record, overdubs, and it's just recorded in a very, very similar fashion. Even Europe 72. These are all some of the most celebrated live recordings, commercial live recordings released by the dead. But... They were only made possible by live debt. And really, like I said, it kind of served as this template, you know, for the band recording up till History of the Grateful Dead Volume 1. You know, that's a very, very different recording. That one sounds more like tapes, right? And I think for Owsley at that time, putting out that record, it was an acknowledgement of kind of the kind of the amateur recordings that were being made. You know, it starts off with Pigpen kind of fumbling on the guitar. There's a discussion between him and an audience member. You know, this is a more intimate type of recording. 
than anything else that we hear that the band has released on commercial recordings. We can hear mistakes, we can hear this dialogue between the band, and obviously, you know, Bear had much more to do with it. I think Bear at this point was really on to it in terms of what the fans wanted to hear with these live recordings. And so that's a really kind of an interesting document in the band's discography because it's there very early in 73, but then they don't really return to that idea. You know, it's more of kind of this more like heavily recorded and produced approach that they use for their live recordings later. The Dead's live recordings, in many ways, they were influenced by what they learned in the studio. This was what conditioned their recording studio. In 1976, the band, members of the organization, started thinking about releasing archival recordings from their vault. At that time, they had Grateful Dead Records. There was Round Records. And this third label that they were proposing was called Ground Records. Steve Brown was an employee of the Dead. And he was, amongst other things, was crucial in kind of thinking a little bit about, all right, kind of potential new revenue streams and kind of new commercial opportunities. They are actually actively planning in 1976 to start releasing archival recordings on their own. They would have done it through mail order at the time. There are handwritten documents, you know, from some of the planning sessions that went into, you know, thinking about this, um, including what they would release live recordings, as well as outtakes. Some were, you know, mentioned for the first couple Garcia records, uh, Blues for Allah, other recordings. There's a breakdown of kind of production costs that would, it would entail as well. Some possible titles and album tracks. But in 1976, this is just as their record company is starting to collapse. And so the plans that they had for ground records were put on hold when they signed to Arista in 76. And then in that contract that the band signed with Arista, there's a clause in there prohibiting the band from releasing archival recordings on their own. So it's just like, nope, we're not going to allow you to do this uh, as long as you're signed to us. amongst fans who are familiar with kind of the lore and the history and the mythology of the dead, you know, Dick LaValla, I mean, it's like, wow, you can get a job working for the dead, doing the greatest job in the world, hanging out with live recordings. I mean, that's, and this is somebody who just conditioned by live recordings. He totally believed and understood kind of the power of live recordings. And so when he becomes first the assistant archivist, you know, he's kind of learning the ropes, but then he's also kind of learning kind of the, you know, that his own ideas and ideals about kind of live recordings aren't necessarily shared by other people. You know, Dan Healy has a very different understanding of kind of liveness and what it means in recordings. 
He sees that the band members often have very little interest in returning to these live recordings. In some ways, it was probably a, a, a shock to kind of be like, well, oh, okay. Um, so, you know, people think about these different ways. They're not always these transformative sacred talismans, as McNally describes them, that they exist in other ways for different people. It took them a while to kind of still at this point, kind of understand like, wait, people want to hear these two tracks, Dario recordings that, you know, have mistakes and like whatever. And so I think Lesh, who was helping obviously with these and Healy, who was heavily involved as well. I mean, try to imagine yourself as Latvala in meetings with Lesh and Dan Healy about what you're going to release on a series called Dick's Picks. I think once these picked up and they started to see the success of them, that's when they were like, you know what? All right, maybe you can kind of take over this in a little bit more detail. When Jerry died, the band, all sorts of meetings took place in terms of the future of the organization. And throughout the notes, the meeting minutes that took place, you know, one of the first things that Lash and the others mentioned is like, listen, live recordings, this is the future of the band. This is, you know, what we have to really do. And they've been thinking about it for years. There were many attempts on their part going back to the 70s to start releasing, you know, archival recordings on their own. It was only following the, the success of Touch of Grey and In the Dark, you know, the band renegotiated their contract and now could release albums on their own. But after Jerry's death, they could do whatever they want. They were released from their contract. And releasing live records, I think they're still learning at this point about what fans want. Because one from the fault their first archival release in 91. And it was massively successful. But at the same time, this was a recording that many people had already. They were very familiar with it. Release of 100 Year Hall really kind of gauged the interest of fans for these archival releases. But more importantly, kind of, you know, full concerts, and, you know, especially ones from well-known eras, you know, the Europe 72, this seemed like, all right, this is going to be amongst fans, this will already be recognized, and it's such a good performance and such a great recording that it could potentially, you know, bring in new audiences as well. And I think that's what it did. Wow. 
in the book, I ended it with talking about like virtual reality, right? That was this was this was one of the ideas that they kicked around in the meetings, you know, right after Jerry died. It's just like, what about virtual reality? Well, the technology isn't there yet, but you know, it's something that we might kind of consider. You know, this is '95, right? But I have been thinking about it lately, and really, what spurred me onto it was this latest Beatles recording, right? Now and then, because. This was two-track stereo recording that, you know, with this technology developed by Peter Jackson, was able to, using AI, right, to extract out all of the different individual parts. Everything is multi-track now. With this technology, we can multi-track, AI can multi-track everything. So even those recordings that have been released by the dead, now we can go back and do Harper College. Let's go back, feed that to the AI multi-track machine, and now let's mix it. And now let's clear up these parts. So I think there's going to be this whole new kind of debate, you know, about what counts as kind of authentic liveness. The ability now to kind of mix and master these recordings in a way that, you know, wasn't available. What constitutes the most authentic live recording, you know, live representation of this event. But notice it's always intimately tied with technology. The latest technology seems to be able to kind of reveal these kind of hidden authentic kind of roots. Eh, you have to believe it, you know. <laughs>